It's a great story. Uh, we'll try to put it, uh, we'll try to post it uh, online so that you guys can read it in a little bit more depth if you're interested on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. Uh, I, it doesn't discourage me, uh, uh, Elaine. I, it doesn't discourage me in the sense that I know that God always ends stories well. At, you know, for, from his perspective, from the perspective of the Christian. And uh, I don't know if you guys uh, are readers. I hated reading books. Um, when I was growing up, I had to do it for school. I love looking at the crowd because I feel like I can get a very visceral, re- visceral reaction from people who think that I'm a horrible person for saying that to begin with. Mercy, it's good to see you. And then how many of you are students and are like, no, I completely get it. Uh, when people told me I had to read, I didn't want to read at all. Then when, uh, when I don't have to read now, all of a sudden, I find it enjoyable. And, and I don't think there's anything worse than reading a good book with a horrible ending. Uh, look, I don't know what comes to your mind. The show Lost is all that comes to mind for me. I know I may be shooting over a couple of young heads here, but we watched the TV show Lost for like seven years, and then we get to the last thing, and it, you couldn't DVR it, you couldn't TiVo it. This is like before all that stuff. Either that or y'all were wealthier than I was back then. I'm not sure which one it is. And so like we had viewing parties. Everybody would pile in. Popcorn was made. Rachel, you were there for some of that. And we're watching Lost. Then you get to the last season, and all of a sudden, and it's like, none of this makes any sense. You didn't tie it together. Maybe you guys are smarter than me. And it was the worst. It was like incredible story, horrible ending. The truth is the opposite of that as well, which is you can have a fairly decent, good, mediocre story, but if the ending just ties together and you realize the author has been planning something from the beginning, psychological thrillers are my favorite, where you didn't realize these Easter eggs were tucked into the book or these huge twists and it comes to the end and, and, and it just causes all of your and you feel like you know the characters and you love them. that to me is the way a book is supposed to end so we are going to do something that is a little unusual we are going to spend an entire sermon on the closing sort of remarks of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. So let me encourage you to do something real quick. There are three times in this sermon I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking cap more than usual, okay? So I I try as best as I can to to preach a sermon that somebody could walk in having never read their Bible and and understand it. But if if you guys, just give me, I know y'all don't like talking to me and saying, well, y'all just give me a north to south that three times you're willing to engage your mind maybe a little bit more than usual. Y'all just give me a little, okay, great. So we're going to start by taking you back to elementary school. And I think we're going to start that way. And uh, back in elementary school, you had to do map quizzes. And maybe it looks something like uh, what's appearing behind me. Let me see if we've got it. I'm looking at Sean Crumpacker. He's looking back and forth. Yeah, I can't tell. Yes, Sean? No, Sean. I'm getting a no, Sean. So here's what I would like for you all to imagine. All right, y'all remember the little map quizzes where you'd have a mountain range over here and a little road, right? And and then you'd have a little star for a capital. And the questions would be like, is the bridge to the east or to the west, to the north or the south of the mountain range or the river? Hey, there it is. We got it. All right, y'all remember taking quizzes on this, public school people, okay? I remember this. It was my favorite thing. I didn't understand why anybody would get any of these questions wrong, but apparently somebody did, and we had to be, like, quizzed on it. The problem was you couldn't answer any of the questions if you didn't have the map key. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you the literary key to understanding how Peter closes out this so that you can make north and south 
mouth of finding the gospel message in something most of us would skip in our quiet times and would not be preached on a Sunday. So eyes into the book. If you uh, have your uh, paper Bible, that is awesome. If you want to grab one from the ends of the rows, that's great. If you want to pull out uh, a piece of technology, that's fine. It's going to appear behind me. But this is 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14, and the textual key that goes along with it. Here's what we read. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, that is not John 3, 16. It is not Romans 3, Romans 5, or Romans 8. Most of us are looking in there and we're like, okay, I get it. Peter's saying, bye, Sylvanus, congrats. You get a shout out. Get to meet you in heaven someday. Mark gets a shout out. We're talking about Babylon for some reason. But Peter's basically done everything he wanted to do in this letter. And he's like, deuces, I'm out. See ya. Love Jesus and, and live your lives. That is not what is happening here. But you have to understand the textual key. Here you go, time number one. I want you to really engage your brains. Here is the sort of the textual key to understanding this text. There are gonna be four names that you need to figure out what to do something with. The first one is Sylvanus. So you'll see that in verse 12, the name Sylvanus. Sylvanus, perfect, there we go. Here's your textual key. Sylvanus means Silas. Silas, uh, it's spelled S-I-L-A-S, sorry about that, that one's on me, is shorthand, it's nicknamed William to Will for Sylvanus. So what is Peter doing? He's talking about Silas, the very guy who is in prison with Paul. They're rejoicing. That is who is being talked about here. Well, the next thing that we see is this word she. Who is she? And just throwing out a pronoun. We see this in other places in God's word uh, where a term like the elect lady comes up. She is referring to the church, sort of like she is the bride. So when we go back, we can say, by Silas, somebody most of you know, if you spent time in the word, he's writing these things, and there is this church that is in the middle of Babylon. Now, at the time that Peter wrote this, Babylon was already in ruins. So what, what, what's he talking about in verse 13 by including the word Babylon? We actually see Babylon pick up in the New Testament. We see it pick up actually beyond the, the day that you and I live in, in the book of Revelation. And what Babylon is referring to is, is sort of this corporate evil. It could be governmental. It could be political. It's where there is a system against the believers, and that's what Babylon refers to. And then the last thing that you need to know is when we are going through the text and you see John Mark or John known as Mark, it's talking about the guy in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second gospel of the New Testament. So there are four things I want you to hold in your head as we work through this text. Sylvanus means Silas. She is referring to a church. Babylon is referring to a system of evil against Christians. And then finally, we get to Mark, who is also known as John Mark. You guys feel like you got that down? Because if we do, we can close out the book of 1 Peter. All right, here we go. So verse 12, let's take it a verse at a time. By Silvanus, also known as Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Notice the word briefly. Uh, it, it would take you less time to read the book of First Peter than it would to watch an average television show. And not just to read it, to read it, to take some notes, to do a little meditation and decide you need to pray about a couple of things. You could read through this. So when Peter is wrapping up the book and he's saying, I've been brief, 
One of the other things that he's saying is, I've really focused on the most important stuff. There's a lot more I could have talked about, but I've really focused on what was most important. And what does he say is the most important thing as you're reading through his letter? I've written briefly to you, exhorting. That means encouraging. You're trying to light a fire under you so that you'll get up and do something. Exhorting and declaring, making a statement for you to wrestle with that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. A a great portion of the New Testament is spent helping us realize that as humans, understanding grace is not something that comes natural to us. And Peter wants to make sure that anyone who has spent any time reading what God inspired him to write would at least get one thing right, the gospel of true grace. And if they have, his expectation is that they would stand in it. He's not saying, I need you to take a hill, I need you to climb a mountain. He's not saying, I need you to win a war. The phraseology that Peter uses is, if you understand the true gospel of grace, I just need you to stand in it. It it reminds me of a boxer. Uh, I love watching MMA highlights. It's it's one of my favorite things. If I got 10 minutes just to get on YouTube and and type in best knockouts in MMA. And so it's one of my favorite. And you watch these guys who just get clocked. I, I mean, I... It's unbelievable the amount of power that goes into a person's body and they are fighting as best as they can just to keep their feet. For those maybe a little bit older, it reminds me of watching a bunch of the highlights of Mike Tyson fights. When that uppercut comes in and you just watch people's eyes reel back and they're hoping to find ropes so that they can keep their feet. Peter is saying this, Christian, You're going to get your head pounded in in this world occasionally. You're going to. There is an enemy who wants to watch you fall. Consider the life of Christ. It's not like Jesus, because he was so faithful, never got a scratch. It's not like he avoided every kind of difficulty. Jesus, for the sake of all of those of us who would trust in him, took the greatest punch that could ever be given. And he took another and another and another as he spread his arms and he bled out and as his flesh was ripped from him for somebody who didn't deserve it. Which is why surrounding this room, we have these little bitty cups to remind us of the blood that was shed and the flesh that was broken for you. Peter's like, you're going to catch it right on the tip of the chin. It's going to happen and you're going to be dazed. Here's what I'm telling you. Fight to keep your feet. Keep standing. Paul grabs the same idea of standing and he runs with it in Ephesians. Now I know what I'm preaching to you is 100% true and 100% abstract. Well, like, okay, keep standing. The enemy, my own sin, is gonna try to take my feet out from it. What am I really supposed to do about that? I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't think there's a simple answer to that, but, but I want to give you two things. This is how uh, Paul deals with it in Ephesians 6. He's closing out a letter too, and in verse 10 we read this. Finally, finally, again, he's closing his letter. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the, armor, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
If we drop down all the way to verse 13, we read, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and after having done all to stand firm. What does it mean if you are a Christian for you to stand firm when so much of you just wants to crumble under the weight of your sin and your life and the difficulties of the people around you, and the endless news cycles, and the stories that start so good, but they seem like they're ending so bad. How do we keep our feet when we constantly get pounded for being a Christian? I'm not kidding when I say the Bible would give you a hundred answers to that. I only want to give you two tonight. If we were to continue reading, here's what we would find in verse 14 as Paul is in Ephesians. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, most of you who grew up in the church know there's an entire armory available for the Christian. It's not just truth and righteousness. It's peace and peace and faith, salvation and the word of God. But again, I'm not giving you the end all be all of how we stand as a Christian. I just want to give you one that I think is very pertinent today. Most of you are in the loop with the scandal with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Uh, apologist, uh, tons of respect, tons of renown, and then because of sexual deviancy has fallen from grace. I just want you to look at the first two attributes of the person, the Christian, who stands. They fastened on truth and they've put on righteousness. Truth and righteousness. So if I'm going to give you two take-homes, here they are. Number one, It is very easy as a Christian, a confessing Christian, to make ourselves look better than we really are. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we put that pressure on ourselves. Every time we walk in this building, if I'm just being real with you guys, I'm stepping away from my notes for a minute. It doesn't make sense for more of us not to be at the altar on a weekly basis. It doesn't make sense for more of us not to be in the back receiving prayer on a weekly basis. It doesn't make sense for us not to look to our neighbor to the right, look to our neighbor to the left, and just say, will you pray with me? Can I share with you what's going on in my life? And I know that because I'm a pastor of you guys, and because I have other pastor friends in very similar swaths of the church. And I'm just telling you, you need each other way more than we put on that we need each other. Okay? Can we just own that truth? We need each other more than we act like we need each other. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to fix that. I don't know what button to press or scripture to read or book study to start. I don't know how to do it. Maybe we just need to say it occasionally. We are really good at faking it. And the reason we're really good at faking it is because we start with ourselves and we justify our own behavior. Then we justify it to our wife or our roommate or our coach or our employer or whatever else. And then it just becomes a fake thing. And if you want to be the Christian who stands, step number one, stop faking. It's okay that you fall. It's okay that you sin. It's just not okay to stay that way. It's okay to make mistakes. God left you here knowing full well he wasn't done sanctifying you. It's okay that you are wrestling and fighting with sin. It's not okay to fake it. So step one to standing, receive and give grace regularly. Grace is the inhaling and the exhaling of the Christian. You can't live doing one without the other. 
And what that means is every day, God, I need grace. God, I need grace. Think that thought, do that thing, say that thing. God, I need grace. God, I need grace. And then I'm surrounded by a bunch of other fakers who are calling themselves Christians, and now I gotta go, here's some grace. Here's some grace. Here's some grace. Become a person who regularly inhales and exhales grace and just decide to kill false righteousness. That's why I started with those two things, truth and righteousness. Jesus had that in perfection. None of the rest of us do. If you wanna stand, you have got to fight for a true righteousness, not a false one. And that's exactly who Silas was. Go back to the beginning of the letter in verse 12, the beginning of the ending of the letter, and here's what we read, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. He gives him the first word. Silas is the faithful guy. He is truly faithful. And I I love putting on display how faithful he is because to me, it is mind-boggling. You can flip if you want to the very first verse in 1 Peter's letter, or you can watch it behind me, but here's what we read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, here is who I am writing to. Those who are elect exiles, I'm writing to Christians of a scattered church of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I don't know why I love those words. To me, they roll off the tongue. It's, they're my, it's some of my favorite hard words in the Bible to say in a run. But it means absolutely nothing to me. Anybody ever been to Bithynia for vacation? How's Cappadocia this time of year? Nobody in here knows. I don't know, but I can tell you this. Those five areas cover 130,000 square miles. And 10% of you are amazed by that. What 130 square miles looks like is if you were to take all of Alabama and all of Georgia and all of South Carolina. That is where this letter went. Now, I want you to imagine that your job was to deliver this letter Oh, and you don't have a car, and you don't have a plane, and you don't have a boat with a motor. You are literally moving at three miles an hour. And here's the job that Peter has for you. Hey, Silas, hey, Sylvanus, I need you to start in Charleston, swing down to Savannah. After you go there, if you'd go encourage the Christians in Columbus, they really need it, swing to Birmingham, back to Atlanta, and then you can make your way all the way back to Charleston. And Silas is like, Sounds good. What else am I going to do with my life, right? I'm I'm living for Jesus. This sounds amazing. And one of the most beautiful things about this text is that Silas does it. He loves people in what must be one of the most inefficient ways to love people. Walking at three miles an hour, carrying a letter that they could read in 15 minutes. Look, I'll be honest with you. There, There are a lot of hard things that Jesus calls us to do as Christians. (laughs) We've asked for some volunteers next week to help us set up at the farmhouse. I have never asked anybody to walk 130,000 square miles. Never. Maybe some of us should give it a shot sometime. But I'll tell you what I love about this passage. It puts on on display something that is true of the gospel that you and I hate as Americans in this century. Love is, by its definition, inefficient. Incredibly inefficient. But because gospel love is inefficient, people see it as more incredible. When you feel like you're giving up so much, 
people can receive that sacrifice as somebody who truly, actually loves. So here's the first thing that we find in this ending to a letter. In God's eyes, flashiness never holds a candle to faithfulness. Not once. Which is why the Bible is saying, just keep standing. Isn't that amazing that the Bible doesn't say, here's the eight punch combo to put the devil on his tail? Sorry, Jesus gets that victory. You and I get to be meat bags who get our clock rung frequently and wobble around looking dazed and confused, just trying to keep our feet. And every time we do, the enemy absolutely loses his mind. An onlooking group of people say, why are you willing to suffer so much and all of it points to how incredible Jesus is. That's why we take the blows. That's why we love in an inefficient way, which is exactly what happened to the church in Babylon. Verse 13, she, a church who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now remember, she, of course, is a church, Babylon, this sort of corporate system of evil. What's happening here? Peter's saying, I just want to give you a heads up, people at Cappadocia, people at Galatia, people at Pontia. I just want to give you a heads up. We're in the belly of the beast. At that point, Babylon to Christians would have been Rome. And Paul is writing them with all of the encouragement in the world. And he's saying, or I'm sorry, Peter is right. And he's saying, hey, how cool is this? I'm literally in the belly of the beast. The group of people that are most opposed to Christians. And we've got a church here. And not only do we have a church here, it is fighting to do well. And you know what? They're not even asking you for anything. Isn't that an amazing thing that this church, centered in the belly of the beast, under incredible persecution, isn't asking for money? They're not asking for resources. They're not asking for anything. They're saying the greatest thing that I can tell another church is, we're here. We're still here. We exist. The enemy is huge and massive and keeps clocking us on the chin, but we're standing, and Jesus is keeping us up. The second thing that we see, if we're willing to study and look into this letter, is churches working together, encouraging one another amidst trials, is the expectation of the New Testament. I just want that to soak in for a minute, because it is completely different than my experience growing up. I'm not putting that on anybody else in this room. I grew up at, in my opinion, some very good churches great theology. And I, I was in parachurch ministries and, uh, and, and other things in Columbus growing up. But the example of the New Testament is that faithful churches need faithful churches just like faithful Christians need faithful Christians. And every one of us in this room knows we're not called to live this life alone. Every one of us knows that, let's be quite honest, we can't do it alone. I need somebody in my corner splashing water on my face after I've just taken a shot and I'm sitting on the stool for a second. I need somebody else to help cut me, to push me back in there to the fight so that I can just keep my hands up and try to keep my feet underneath me. But do we believe as much, as much as you need another Christian, our church needs other churches. And other churches need our church. What would it look like 
Now, now, let's be honest. We can't, everyone who has church on the front sign, we can't all gather together because we're called to stand firm in the gospel. And quite honestly, there are a number of places that call themselves church that don't preach the true gospel of grace that Peter is talking about. But there are a lot that do. There are a lot that do that may not be complementarian or may not be reformed, may have drums or not have drums. There are a lot of things we can disagree on but still hold firm to the gospel and get along in. Can I just tell you, it's not our city that needs it. The world needs to see more than just one Christian getting along with one Christian. They need a group of Christians who are like, I'm a Baptist, hanging out with people who say, well, I'm not. And then they look at each other and they're like, do you believe Jesus is the only way for salvation, that you are a wretched sinner and apart from his grace and his righteousness you have nothing? You bet you do. Then we need to support each other and pray for each other and encourage one another. Mitri doesn't exist because Will had an idea. Part of why Mitri exists is because Crosspoint had an idea. Many of you are here because the church that you never attended helped get this church going. We're literally in a building that we did nothing to do, to, to get. Christ community does not have the same theology we do. But they looked and they were like, Will, we know you're preaching the gospel. We're not doing anything on Sunday night. What a waste that we spend 165 hours of an empty building. I think I did the math correctly. I think it's 168 hours in a week. We spend three as a church. Which means we spend $3 million on a building and we use it for three hours out of 168. No. Christ community said, get in here, preach the gospel and draw people in. The same thing is true of my buddies who are in Acts 29. You don't know them. They don't know your faces, but they pray for you, and they love you, and I pray for their congregation. You're going to hear in a couple of weeks from folks who are serving at Highland Community Church with Rob Strickland in our area, missional community groups and different people. They're going to be up on the stage just telling you about the ministry of another church, of a brother who knows and loves the gospel. Faithful churches need churches, like faithful Christians need Christians. And then we get to this, verse 13. And so does Mark, my son. Okay, Will, you've been ringing out the end of this letter. All right, churches need churches, people need people. True grace, we need to respond to it. How on earth, wait, that's not right. How on earth are we going to ring anything out of, and so does Mark, my son? This is my favorite verse of the entire closing. This is the third time I'm gonna ask you to be a little bit of a thinker. You have to understand who Mark is. All right, first question for you as we put on our thinking caps. Who did Peter mention first at the end of this letter? You don't have to answer out loud. I know how much y'all love that. He mentioned Silvanus, whose other name was Silas. And what credit did he give him? It's the first five words in the closing of the letter. By Silvanus, a faithful brother. So here we have Silas the faithful, and then Mark shows up at the end of the letter. Well, who is this guy? I'm going to go through these quickly. If you want me to give you these scriptures at the end, I will be happy to. This is Acts chapter 12. Who is this Mark guy? Put on your thinking caps. Follow with me. 
I'm at the end. It is worth it. Follow me down this trail. There are a couple of thorns, but stick with me. Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul, also known as Paul, could have put him in the textual key, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, who's John, whose other name was Mark. This is the guy at the end of 1 Peter. They're doing ministry in Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, John, Mark, whatever, come over here. We want you to hang out with us. Dropping down to Acts 13. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they I always want to say salami. Then when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that's Mark, to assist them. What's happening here? Some of you grew up in a Catholic background. Some of you grew up in a Methodist background. And you understand the word catechism. In all likelihood, John was the young guy who was going with Paul and going with Barnabas. And they would preach the gospel as God had called them to. And there would be some Jews who had misunderstood the gospel. And some Gentiles who had never heard the gospel. And they were like, hey man, that's interesting. This whole true grace thing that I can't earn my salvation. But God loved me enough to send his son so that I could respond to to that gift, and they're like, that's great. We need to preach the gospel. Mark's gonna be your dude. And so here's this young guy who's basically doing catechizing. He's sitting down with like Christianity 101, hour after hour, and this Jew's like, yes, but don't we need to earn it? And he's like, that's dumb, you can't earn it. And he keeps on going, and you've got this Gentile, and they're like, why would anybody give a great gift? You were created in the image of God, and he's just doing Christianity 101. That is who Mark was. But something happens. In fact, just a few verses later in Acts 13, 13, Paul and his companions set, set sail from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, that's Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why. Maybe his gap year program ended. He's like, time to get back to the other pieces of life. We don't know. John, Mark is just like, I'm out. Peace. Y'all keep doing the whole Jesus thing. I got some other things I got to deal with. We find out what happens. This is the last one I want to show you in Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, these are guys who knew each other, loved each other, had served with one another. They had suffered together. They'd taken it on the chin together. And Paul looks at Barnabas and he says, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. Christians need Christians and churches need churches. Barnabas, let's go. Let's encourage them. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Mark, at the end of the book of Peter, is the guy who separated Paul and Barnabas. He's the young guy, I think he was a cousin of Barnabas, he's the young guy who was so integral into the ministry that they were doing that when for whatever reason, immaturity, being tired, feeling like he was missing out on too much of life, the Bible doesn't even tell us, but he finally gets to the point, he says, I'm done. I, I'm tired of walking, I'm tired of standing, I've gotta take a break, I'm out. And it was so, uh, so destructive to the ministry in the sight of Paul that Paul looks at Barnabas in verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. These guys quit. And do you know what I love about this? I don't know how many of you guys have a Bible with study notes. I highly recommend it. It will help you to be a better studier of God's word. I like the ESV. Happen to think it has the best notes. In the ESV, when you look up this sharp disagreement, here's what it says. First phrase. In the sovereignty of God, we believe that, look, any time, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Every one of you who have been here for any number of sermons, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Nine times out of 10, that's you saying, I got no clue. 
That's exactly what it means. In the sovereignty, I have no clue. I don't know exactly what happened there. I don't know why it played out, but here's what they said. In the sovereignty of God, Paul and Barnabas splitting led to double missions work. That's great, ESV study Bible. You're absolutely right. What the heck was going on there? God was sovereign. They don't know. But do you know what I find so cool? This is it. This is the last time you can turn your brains off after this. Here's the next verse. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Here he is. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Do you see what just happened? Peter ends his book starting with the guy who was faithful. That's who he starts with. And he ends his book with this one little phrase to the guy who had fallen from grace. He starts with the one who kept his feet. He starts with the one who pushed through the fight. And then, before he closes out his letter to squeeze every drip drop of the true gospel of grace out, he points at the guy who fell. He points to the guy who couldn't keep his feet. But that isn't the end of the story because God is a restoring God which means his people are called to be a restoring people. Someone, if you're a Christian, was integral, maybe a number of people, in you responding to the gospel. And I'd be willing to bet that not everyone who is pivotal in you coming to the Lord has remained perfectly faithful since that time. That's hard. But here's how the Bible deals with it. So what happens to this guy who couldn't keep his feet? Well, Paul writes a lot of stuff in the New Testament. And he closes out Philemon by saying, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Lumus, my fellow workers. He ends it by saying, hey, Mark is now working with me. The guy that I had pushed away is now working with me. When he closes out Colossians, he says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes, welcome him. Paul goes out of the way to say, I know I stepped away from this guy because he couldn't keep his feet. He didn't stay standing, but what I'm telling you now is receive him, welcome him, and then finally he writes to second, in 2 Timothy to this young pastor, and Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. He is very useful to me for ministry. The guy who lost his feet is the, is the one that Paul wants. This will be the last note that I give you in the book of 1 Peter. In giving instructions to the church, Peter ends on this. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on the gospel, the true gospel of grace. And don't give up on each other. Because it's Mark, not Silas, who's most terrifying to Babylon, to the enemy. The one who is down and out, but then gets back up. The enemy has to hate that. Peter doesn't end this letter by saying, see you later, it's in there. He doesn't end the letter by saying, hey, there's this really faithful guy, put your eyes on him, it's in there. He doesn't say, hey, there's an enemy, but we're gonna overcome, there's a church in Babylon, it's in there. Do you know how he ends it? He ends it by saying, the guy who couldn't stand, the guy who couldn't keep his feet, God has restored even him. And so when I look at this, and I think about you, here's what comes to mind. 
There may be some of you who are so grateful that you're standing firm in the gospel. Praise God. Come to a table where your soul can receive nourishment at the work of Christ. And there are some of you who have just been clocked by life, relationship, difficulty, or whatever else. And do you know what the gospel says? You need to come to this table to receive nourishment so that you can stand. But the most exciting thing to me about how Peter ends this letter is he looks to those of us who are on the mat. He looks to those of us who have been knocked down by the wave of temptation. He looks to those of us who, who have been overtaken by the prowling lion of the enemy. He looks to those of us who look at our life as though it's just shattered pottery at our feet. And he says, hey, do you feel like you're on the mat? Do you feel like the 10 count is coming? You need to come and receive nourishment. Because there is one great hope that we have in Christ and one great healer that we have in Christ, but it is only Christ who does those things. I got no clue where you're at. I know this, it's easy to fake it. I got no clue where you're at, but I know this, you need other Christians and churches need other churches and you need grace for your life. And I know this, it is hard not to give up on God at times. It is hard not to give up on the gospel as everything that you need. And it is very hard not to give up on people. But it's why we have to recurringly remind ourselves that we need grace. We needed bloodshed. So the book ends, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is where true peace comes from. Colossians 1, through him being Jesus, we are reconciled to himself, to God, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This table is for every Christian. If you're not a Christian and you know that you need grace, I would encourage you to come and find me. We've got a prayer team that'll be in the back and just say, I need some of that grace. I'm on my back. And if God is offering to pick me up, I want to take that offer. Pray with me now and then we'll come and receive. Take the elements back and we'll receive them together. Father, I am thankful for every word of your truth. Every word of the gospel. I'm so grateful that we get the example of Silas and those people in our life who just seem to be faithful. It's not always flashy but they just love you mile after mile, day after day. And I'm thankful that as we meet today, there are a myriad of churches who are sharing the exact same gospel, the true gospel of grace, so that people can come and find hope and they can find the, the healing that they need for the condition of their sin. Father, we need other churches and other churches need us. Help us lift up our eyes. I pray for those in the congregation who need to inhale grace for the first time. I pray for those who have done it once but have been holding their breath since because they're scared or they're ashamed. Would they breathe in the work of Christ? And by so doing, would you give us the ability to breathe out grace to those around us? Every one of us is a muddled lot. But Father, you love us anyway. And one of the greatest things that you do is pick up the faithless. You pick up the one who has been knocked absolutely down 
and you by your own power lift them up again and again and again. And for those of us in this room who are down and out, may we realize that the gospel is not just strong enough to allow us to stand through difficulty, but that it shows itself to be even stronger when we fall and it does not walk away from us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.